0: Music has served a function for human civilizations for as long as we have kept record. And for thousands of years, music was made, shared and owned by the public who heard it. Over time this changed and the powers that be consolidated the ownership of music to the individual. Individuals became companies and companies corporations. In each of these phases, culture, technology and ideologies changed to reflect these adaptations in behaviour. So in this episode, I will take you through the human history of music consumption, its technologies, the behaviours around ownership of this much-beloved medium, and what the future might hold for our consumption of music in a culture made of algorithms, a podcast that takes a look at our media consumption, the culture it produces, and societies left behind. Salutations listener, I'm Omar Eileen and you're listening to A Culture Made of Algorithms, a podcast that takes a look at media consumption for cultural producers and the societies left behind. Today we open a mini-series on music and continue the conversation around ownership by looking at the role of music in our culture, how it has adapted over time to demand and how technology has pushed the medium along. So let's start by looking at a history of music by starting at its pre-recorded age. Now anthropologists believe that the first musical instrument is only about forty thousand years old so for the archaeology buffs it's about the middle to upper paleolithic era when africa was in the middle of its later stone age and europeans early humans were seemed to be walking about so anthropologists have made a link that the creation and sharing of music particularly in the scope of entertainment are almost exclusively human behaviors and the common belief at this time was that our ancestors shared the music they created in communal spaces inviting those both inside and outside of the family units to share stories, lessons, and faith in the form of song. Now during this time, the ownership of music was seen as communal, one that belonged to the entire community as an information base that was shared between generations. It was therefore the duty of a parent to pass on information to their child and for their child to pass their songs between the community. At this time, music served the purpose of being both informative and entertaining. Now this dual purpose media made music vital in the era before writing, literacy, printing, and storing information, as jigs helped early humans remember and memorize information that they would need at a later date. Think of it something like your ABCs and nursery rhymes, but instead of being told to scream when you see a crocodile, you might have been given a slightly more clear instruction on what to do should you encounter one. Religion, which served as a third purpose of music, was also seen as being owned communally, with ownership being something that transcended the self and was a part of a wisdom shared between the deity and its subjects. This actually reflected a wider societal structure at the time, one which saw ownership of the land and everything on it belonging to the lord of the land, and by extension the monarch who ruled over them all. That was until, unfortunately, Black Death came into town. Also known as the Pestilence and the Great, the period between 1346 and 1353 saw the bubonic plague ravage much of the world, taking between 75 million and 200 million lives and changing the world with an effect that we still feel today. In the wake of the disease and the recovery of the Africa, Europe and the Middle East found themselves in, would change the amount of leverage the masses had over their landowners for whom they were in service to. This would be especially true for the farming class, or serfs, who were having to work harder on larger patches of land for less or what was the same pay. Using their leverage to threaten to starve entire regions through work stoppages, farmers leveraged their position for better pay. Sometimes land rights too, and in this negotiation between farmers and landlords, the, the level of expectation between the two changed. So instead of food being seized by a landowner in taxes, now food was available to be sold at the market at a rate the farmer deemed fair. Taxes in that case would be paid in foodstuffs or in local currency that was paid through the sale of their merchandise. This actually resulted in two major changes in attitude. Firstly, the ownership of something was now seen as something that could be transferred. This transfer meant ownership was no longer ordained by someone simply because they had an innate right to it. The second attitude change was that transfer of ownership was backed by a third party, indicating a standardized price. In this case, the third party would be the crown and the standardized price was in its currency. This meant creators could trade ownership of what they created for money and in turn, the birth of what we now know to be capitalism was set into motion. What followed was the rise of the artists as an industry and the prominence of bards, poets who would sing their works to music throughout lands, domestic and foreign. What they would sing were tales and memories of a community, sharing exploits to those who would pay to listen. And in this case, music was still a communal idea, or at least individuals who tried to claim ownership were unprotected by a system which recognised ownership of music as art, as being owned by an individual. Instead, recognition is what mattered in this era of music, so multiple bards may have sung the same songs and charged audiences the privilege of hearing their tales. However, what is drastically different here is that previously music was sung for a community and now it was sung to them, being recognised as a skill in which personal labour was acknowledged. Now, as European nations grew more resentful towards travelling singers, they remarketed the audiences to whom a bard could reach by inventing auditoriums. Now, auditoriums are best known for their role in facilitating plays, but auditoriums allowed bards to play to audiences who specifically wanted to be entertained and also had the means to pay for it. This, in turn, removed an element of solicitation from how bards operated before, but also it removed a bard's sphere of influence over their audience. This would be because the owner of an auditorium would control the flow of currency, as well as increase the distance between the audience and the artist. By taking a fee from the paying crowd, they would argue that they not only owned the artist's right to broadcast their work, but they also argued that they owned the audience's right to see the broadcast. Now, these are two arguments that still exist today, but for now, let's put a pin in that because we're going to revisit it a little bit later. This is because in 1710, the Parliament of Great Britain enacted an Act for the Encouragement of Learning by vesting the copies of printed books in the authors or purchasers of such copies during the times therein mentioned. Also known as the Statute of Anne or the Copyright Act of 1710, this was the first piece of legislation that recognised creators as having ownership of what they created as well as the ability to have that ownership transfer. However, what would follow would is what many consider the first era of recorded sound and in this new era it would mark this law as one as being short-sighted in the scope of potential technologies which, which would follow it and in turn set into motion a theme that laws are quite often chasing after the technologies which come before them. Now with the innovation of the phonograph in 1877 sound and later music were recorded for the first time in human history onto something other than the human brain and at this time as the phonograph grew in popularity producers and music distributors were intertwined with companies now these companies in turn were operating within a vertically integrated business model meaning that companies owned the entire means of production from writing to recording to artists themselves as well as marketing and distribution but sometimes manufacture this meant that companies owned the artists and in turn owned the art they created as well. It also meant that they owned the audiences and the audiences' right to access the texts, which is the pin we put in it earlier. Now this all came to a head in 1922 when the case of Star versus Victor, a dispute about patents around the manufacturing of records would rule in Star's favour. This meant that any record label was now allowed to use the industry standard lateral process for recording Sound. This would be a huge decision which would alter the cultural consumption of music. Now, we can see this in the diversification of audiences who consumed music, as well as the rise of genres and content, especially for those in the deep North American South and Black Americans in major cities. Additionally, music consumption transitioned from communal, quote, listening parlours to individuals listening due to the phonograph being sold commercially. This raised the number of records from 4 million in 1900 to around 100 million in 1920. Once again, what we would see here is that music consumption continues to shift from communal consumption like it was during the folk era to it now being an individualised behaviour. One where personal taste could mark you out as a distinct audience from other listeners in the very same home that you occupied or even your local community or even entire region. Now this trend of individualising music consumption continued throughout the early 1900s and essentially would end during the Second World War. Now this trend of individualising music consumption continued, however one thing would change that drastically and that was the invention and innovation of the radio. Now the invention and innovation of the radio weren't alone in changing audiences consumption and behaviour. Because the Great Depression between 1929 and 1939, as well as World War II between 1939 and 1945, were also major factors which have impacted the music industry. Firstly, the radio allowed better sound quality to be transmitted directly to the consumer. This partially supplemented the 90% drop in record sales that the US and UK music industry saw during the Great Depression. Another supplementary factor that saw this 90% drop were sound films or talkies. These were feature length motion pictures which had synchronised sounds that matched the images you could see on the screen. Today we just call them films, but back in the 1920s and up until early 1950s, talkies were a fantastic innovation that had and deserved their own name. But anyway, sound films Revolutionized cinema and competed with music because they were out to replace silent movies. And for audiences, sound, or at least paying for sound, was a privilege that needed to be selectively chosen, let's say. But with the end of World War II and the aftermath of the war that prolonged rationing, at least here in the UK, audiences were beginning to rehomologize, as did tastes and music consumption. And this is actually reflected in the survival tactics that many independent labels turned to during this huge and prolonged economic downturn. Namely, you can see this in the merging of labels which produced early conglomerates. But then, another major change happens with the innovation of the microphone. Now, this technology allowed vocalists to emerge as an artist in their music field because before you could only record certain frequencies of sound. Quite often the human voice was outside of that scope and any recordings before the 1950s were very rudimentary recordings, not necessarily ones that could lend to the scope of artists that would emerge, namely Frank Sinatra who had a very distinct voice during this time that could not previously be well recorded up until now. Here and during this time of the emergence of the vocalists, what would emerge is a segmented audience field grapple as a market. What would emerge were pro and anti vocalist camps and within the pro vocalist audience people and audiences would flock to their preferred singer. In the anti vocalist camp there were a a range of bands in which someone could select and choose to listen from and as such you had two entirely different market and genres of music which people would flock to to reflect their personal tastes. Additionally, the film industry adopted songs and sounds from musicals which would in turn boost individual appeal of artists and create stars which would be sold to consumers. I actually talk about the impact of stars in an earlier episode when I talk about celebrities back in season one. Now, the idea of making something popular and creating stars that we could sell to audiences is where if you look at someone like Fyodor Adorno, here their perspective on popular culture would come in and And in his essay on popular music in 1941, Adorno argues that popular songs were standardised with artists' expression being lost in what was a quest for an appeal to popular markets. What would follow though is the magnetic era. Defined by the release of the microgroove LP and the ability to slice in non-recorded sounds, this era saw the birth of albums as what could be recorded onto one record was now at 50 minutes. Up until now, music consumption was taken into bites because records could hold about three minutes worth of recordings and in those three minutes, you would have essentially one song. Your music consumption would start and end with one song. This can explain why the markets and audiences never really segmented up until now because people could very plausibly take turns listening to music even if they shared the use of one phonograph or in the case of a listening parlour, That music was provided for them and it could be from a range of artists that they had no input in as to who they would listen to next. However, with the microgroove LP now holding more music, the cost of recording, manufacture and distribution became a lot cheaper. I mean, after all, if you can put on 50 minutes worth of songs from one artist onto one disc, that could be around about 14 songs. Before then, you would have to have had produced and bought and have available to you 14 different records that you could record from that artist that you could then distribute. So imagine how many trucks you would need to have a store's worth of albums, let's say, if they all came on individual discs that you could then have to stock. What ended up here though with this reduced cost of recording, manufacturing, and distribution was the emergence of independent labels. And once again, these independent labels began to cater to markets and audiences that may have been outside of their reach previously. And we can see this for example in 1950, 11 labels were owned by 10 companies, but within 10 years and by 1960, 45 labels existed, and these were owned by 39 companies comparatively. However, what differed this time in a more segmented market was that these were now more marketable markets. One which labels saw as audiences they could sell back catalogues i quote that too and these back catalogues consisted of less marketable songs that only that specific audience might like this differed rather than a collection of people who may want to purchase and consume one very good song previously when songs were released on three minute records now this fragmentation of audiences also reflected an ever more personal taste but what did change was that because artists had fuller catalogues catering to specific audiences, my goodness, put my teeth in, that audience began to identify others in their audience cluster and share personalised music. Now, nothing says this quite like the digital era that followed. Earmarked by the Sony Walkman in 1979, the introduction of MTV in 1981, and the CD in 1982, music consumption was yet again changed through emerging technologies. This time, rather than focusing on an industry response to an audience, what changed here was how audiences were responding to an industry because the digital era is also marked by the concern around consumer piracy and home taping. Now, older listeners of this podcast might remember this, but one thing that plagued the music industry throughout the 80s and 90s was that people would record straight from the radio onto a cassette tape and make tapes that consisted of a mixture of music, what we would later go on to understand as a mix tape and amongst friends these tapes might get re 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 and re-recorded multiple times till the fidelity was completely lost but it was such a low-cost way to share music that the cost of entry was simply a cassette and a radio with a recording function that quite often teenagers already had access to because their parents owned the technology Amongst lovers though, mixed tapes would be a fantastic way to say to your lover things that you couldn't say with your words. You would instead place in songs. These songs could tell your lover how you felt about them. And if we look at the scope of toxic masculinity and the inability to share feelings and how that impact has necessarily decreased over time, I can see how the appeal of having music tell you and tell your partner how you felt was very much appealing to men at the time. And in fact it's actually a behaviour that we still do today, albeit with curated playlists on streaming services. But let's talk about how big that impact, and I say that impact, piracy as an impact was on the music industry. Well it's kind of hard to track in this age because it's before computer usage. so. Lots of the statistics around that era are speculative and they usually compare bottom lines that you have to extrapolate using recession data and GDP and average household incomes against that information. So what I will say is that one thing that definitely arose in response to piracy was the touring market. Now previously touring was used by artists as a way to market their music to a new audience but also to establish a connection with existing fans. However, it soon became the primary way in which artists made money as album sales simply weren't at the same level as they used to be. And in fact, it's an impact that we still see today with artists having to talk because streaming income just isn't high enough for them to sustain the lifestyle that they are essentially entitled to. Now in the internet age, the issue became a lot easier to track, like I spoke of earlier, with the computer age. But after 20 years of having access to pirated content, piracy was not the sensitive topic that it used to be. Take for instance Mark Bender and Yongshen Wang's piece on the impact of digital piracy on music sales. In 2009, BitTorrent had been downloaded 173 million times, and LimeWire, its competitor, was downloaded 181 million times. And these were figures that were just taken from the same website. Now, for comparison, today in 2020, which is 11 years after that research was undertaken, we now see a far larger user base of internet users on the network. Comparatively, Spotify has 130 million active users, and that's a platform that's free. If we also look at the Piracy Impact Archives, which who are based in the USA, they've highlighted that in 2002, Computer owners mean CD expenditure decreased by 11% to the previous year and in 2003 it decreased a further 14%. Now it's tempted to say that the industry was making a 25% less mean income in 2003 than they were in 2000. But one thing we have to consider with these statistics is that they were based on people who owned computers. Which whilst computers are in everyone's homes and pockets in 2020... It was a popular thing to have a computer back in 2000, but it wasn't common. And We can see that by the the market of internet cafes, which, which simply existed. Now, the digital era, however, was transformed drastically in the 40 years since the digital era began. Spotify, for example, has been perhaps falsely celebrated as a tool in which piracy has been tackled. Because digital conglomerates such as Google, Apple and Spotify have changed the distribution model with digital platforms now streaming music rather than selling it allowing record labels to essentially keep ownership of their products, the product being both the artists and the art that they create, but also record companies and record stores don't need to stock copies because it's just simply not necessary. But in the case of Spotify specifically, as a free platform anyone with an internet connection and a phone or computer with sufficient specifications can download the application and access the latest releases mixtapes that require you to record from the radio now and instead you can have studio perfect releases that you have access to in and arrange in any order that you like really sharing these studio perfect releases is far easier too and you can curate followers for a playlist and no work has to go into you buying cassettes or hoping that the person you give them to passes them on without stealing the credit. However, our personal behaviour around music has changed yet again. Because now we don't even need to rely on other people necessarily to get music suggested to us. Music is now being produced algorithmically as well. It's based on parameters of the artist or listener puts in and is commonly based on mood. Playlists are also curated algorithmically as well, matching up BPM, genre tags, similar artists, features, producers and general, again, moods that are invoked from a number of songs to create a playlist that we can vibe to, as it were. Now look, this isn't to discredit or diminish the roles that dedicated playlist curators are paid to do. I mean, their work is incredible. But with 40,000 new songs being published every day on Spotify as a platform alone, it is impossible for its 130 million active users to have four new daily playlists sent to them that were curated by human hand. However, our behaviour on sharing the music we consume has now forced us to rely on non-musically related infrastructure to make it happen. Granted, in the days of vinyl, cassettes and CDs, we were reliant on the manufacturing, refining and delivery services, but each were commonly controlled or owned by the conglomerates who who delivered and owned the music. Today, we're now far more reliant on social medias to share our music, whether that is through Instagram and its stories feature, whether that's to sharing it or as a tweet on Twitter, or through our Facebook status updates, or even messaging services such as WhatsApp and Discord. One thing that is frequently missing from the music suggestions that we receive today is word of mouth. Now, this is something that I'm guilty of too, don't get me wrong. Each week, I post this podcast en masse to my various social medias, and people, Potentially, this saves me face from sending the message out to people personally and when I look at the analytics, knowing that they haven't listened or if I just look at the message and see it's gone unread. But this also feeds back into the psychology of the dating app that I spoke about in Season 1, namely that it saves us the pain of rejection. We're saved from having to swallow our pride when the song we put on the AUX cable in the card doesn't slap for others like it slaps for us, but it does go both ways. We also don't have to grit our teeth through an atrocious track that our friend thinks is fire because the distance between us and them is enough that we can close the track five seconds in after the horrible vocals kick in and not feel rude. But whilst this episode has mostly been about historical overview and the timeline of music and its technology and how we humans have consumed it, I'm using this episode to set the foundations of next week's episode, where I interview one third of the music and culture podcast. Don't alert the stands. Is Eden McKenzie. Now, during that episode, I will look at how parents can influence their children's music tastes. We'll look at how things may change in a culturally reset music landscape. We'll also reevaluate the value that we have as a public place on artists, as well as so much more. So, I hope to see you then. As always, though, there will be a poll that you can take part in on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter as at acmoapod. The link will be in the episode description. Alternatively, you can email me on a culture made of algorithms at gmail.com if you want to deliver some feedback. But if you haven't already, it would be greatly appreciated if you leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to me on. In the meantime, though, I want to give a very special thank you to Daniel Thomas, who delivered much of the information you listened to in this episode during a lecture last year. But for you listeners, from the bottom of my heart, I bid you to stay safe. Take care.